The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our service of Berean Baptist Church. That irks me when I have an idea about a verse and I can't quite pin it down. <laughs> uh, I do lean much more strongly towards the interpretation that the sons of God are men. They are men that God saved, and the Nephilim were essentially wicked men. Um, but I will also say, while some may at first just scoff off the notion that the sons of God are angels, and that these angelic beings uh, essentially intermarried with human women in some physical human form. That may be scoffable at first, but I think you might at least be surprised how seemingly strong the biblical arguments for it are. And just because you think it's hard to understand or a bit disturbing, again, I don't take the angelic view, but (laughs) thinking that it's a disturbing thought isn't a good enough reason to reject it. You need an actual biblical argument which is what I've been formulating over the past few months. Um, I had thought I would have enough time to go over all my research and give a, an argument that I would be confident giving that these are sons of God, that these sons of God are men. But there's still a few loose ends I want to tie up before I actually do that. So earlier this week, um, I decided I probably wasn't going to have enough time to actually get that lesson done. So I switched my topic. So tonight we'll be talking about the issue of abortion. Uh, This has been an issue stirred up in the news lately because of the new Texas law that effectually bans abortion. Uh, Our Congress has approved a bill that would legalize abortion. Thankfully, it still needs to go to the Senate. Senate. Uh, It's called the Women's Protection Act, which I find a bit prejudiced and uninclusive. As far as I'm told, expert scientists and medical uh, medical doctors, they tell me men could get pregnant now. Um, so I'm not sure why it's called the Women's Health Act, Protection Act. Who knew? Uh, <laughs> and there, there are also talks of Roe v. Wade finally getting reanalyzed by the Supreme Court, probably because of the Texas law. So I think it would be a good time to have a little refresher about the topic of abortion. What does the Bible say about the unborn? Uh, the Bible refers to the womb specifically about 70 times. And, but before we get to those verses, I think it would be good for us to kind of lay the foundation of Christian anthropology. Uh, anthropology, anthropos means man or mankind. So anthropology is the study of man, mankind, human nature. And that is really where the cultural issues of abortion, and not only abortion, but many other issues, rise from. We have, it's not so much a political disagreement, it's a colliding of worldviews. Uh, it's a question about origins, what is the purpose of humanity, why, do, why does man exist, are there absolute moral laws that bind human behavior? Those are all the sorts of questions that anthropology likes to ask. So if you turn to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, and while you're flipping there, I'll just explain. Anthropology asks questions like, Does man have a purpose to life? Where does humanity come from? Why does man behave the way he does? What even is a human being? Do human beings have duties and responsibilities simply because they are human? Or to rephrase the last question, are there absolute moral laws? 
Are there moral laws that bind humanity with an obligatory expectation regarding their human behavior? Genesis gives us the answer to these questions. The book begins at the beginning of all things. God created the heaven and the earth, and then he began the morning and evening cycles, which constitute the six-day creation. He began by making light, and this light was not from the sun, it was not from stars. It became from himself. He generated the light by his own power. On day two, God created the atmosphere, which formed essentially what you can call a breathing space for his creatures, a place for them to live in. On day three, he uh, he raises dry land out of the water, out of the deep, and he creates plants and fruits and every kind of herb. Day four, God made light bearers, stars. He made the greater light, the sun, and the lesser light. And these light bearers would essentially be a more permanent light source for his creation instead of him generating the light himself. On the fifth day, God made every swimming sea creature and the fowls of the air. And on the sixth day, God saved the best for last. God created dogs and mankind. (laughs) On the seventh day, God finished his work and rested, and he declared that the seventh day would be a day of rest. And he hallowed it and sanctified it as a day of worship for himself. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 through 28 reads, And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And of course, we know what happens next. God takes Adam, the first man, places him in a garden in the land of Eden. Genesis 2.15 says, And the Lord God took the man and and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayst freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. But Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, and they broke God's single law. They had paradise, they had perfect fellowship with God, and they chose to rebel. This caused the entrance of sin and death into the world and also explains why humans have a sin nature, why they are positively inclined towards sinning. So right off the bat, we can get some answers to our anthropology questions. What is a human being? A human being is a creature of God made in God's image to do his will and to worship him. Where did man come from? God intentionally created man from the dust not by an accident, by the power of his word, and gave him life by breathing into his nostrils. God did all this without the use of any pain or suffering or death of any of his creatures. Is man more valuable than the animals or plants? Yes. God set man above the animals and plants of the earth and told him to have dominion over them and to subdue them. While humans and animals and plants physically all develop and run on biochemicals, 
oftentimes very similar biochemicals. The construct of the human body is more valued and precious to God because it houses the immortal spirit of man and the breath of life that God gave to man. Is mankind expected to behave a certain way? That is, are there moral absolutes? Yes, God gave man moral absolutes right at the beginning. He commanded them to fill the earth with children and to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Later revelation adds to this, the, what, the Greek word would be the decalogue. It just means the Ten Commandments. These Ten Commandments are summed up in the two phrases, Thou shalt love thy God with all thy heart and love thy neighbor as thyself. Why does man behave the way he does? Man was created upright and perfect, but sinned, leading to the total depravity of the human nature. doesn't mean that man is always as bad as he could possibly be, but he is wholly unable to please God, and he is always inclined to do what is evil. While man still is the image of God with a conscience, he nonetheless sins in accordance with his enslaved nature. This is the basis of Christian anthropology. What we must get, but we must ask another question. Is to pre-born hu- a human, are there moral laws that forbid us from killing the unborn? And obviously, I, my statement and my position is, the pre-born child is a living human being created by God with a soul, even while in the womb. I can prove this from three schools of thought. I can prove this from three schools of thought. We'll go over the theological arguments, the scientific arguments, and the philosophical arguments, theologically. Uh, To begin with, we'll start with the theological perspective of abortion. What does God have to say about this issue? Is the pre-born counted by God as a person? The most definitive text I can think of is Exodus chapter 21, verse 23 to 25. And you can turn there if you want. I'm going to go ahead and read it. Exodus 21, verse 23 through 25. It says, If man strive and hurt a woman with child, so that her fruit depart from her, and yet no mischief follow, he shall be surely punished, according as the woman's husband will lay upon him. And he shall pay as the judges determine. And if any mischief follow, then thou shalt give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burning for burning, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Now, some good-hearted <laughs> pro-life people have tried to make this all about simply the killing of the unborn. And while that is part of it, um, that is true, it's not entirely covering just that aspect of killing the unborn. What is more, a better understanding of what it's talking about is if two men are fighting with each other and they accidentally hit a pregnant woman, Uh, Maybe it's because she came in and tried to stop them, tried to calm them down, or whatever happens. And they accidentally hit her belly. What it's talking about when it talks about her fruit departing from her, it's not necessarily death, it's just saying it leaves her. In other words, it's a premature birth. She gives birth prematurely. I think this for a a couple reasons. Uh, First of all, the word depart simply means leave. Uh, leaves the womb. Secondly, the word for miscarriage, and there is a Hebrew word for miscarriage, shakal, is used in Exodus 26, but it's not used here. So if solely um, a miscarriage was in view, they could have used that word. 
So you may be wondering, well, what does this have to do with abortion then, if this isn't necessarily talking about the killing of the unborn? Because it is what God says to do with the child if any harm comes to it. First of all, notice it says, child. The unborn is counted by God as the child of the mother, even while it is in the womb. The word for child is yaladeha. Uh, it is a word used in the Bible elsewhere to refer just to children outside the womb, young boys, young girls, just normal children. And no distinction is made between the children outside the womb and the children inside the womb. Secondly, notice this verse says, if no injury, if no, excuse me, if no injury follows, or as the King James renders it, if no mischief follows, it's talking about injury, then the striker shall give the woman a reasonable compensation fee for the minor injury of a premature birth. Uh, that's still an offense. You can't do that. So part of the Mosaic law is you cause my child to come out before it should have, but there's no damage to it. It's not hurt, but you still need to pay a fine. So the husband tells the man he needs to pay a fine for the offense he caused. But if there is injury, injury to the child, if a man strikes a woman with child and the child is hurt, deformed, or dead then God says the law of retaliation applies. Uh, the law of retaliation is simply an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's a very common saying. I'm sure many of you heard it. And it simply means the punishment must fit the crime. It doesn't necessarily mean if you poke out my eye, I get to poke out your eye next. It's not really the main point. The point is give me something of equal worth. The punishment must be appropriate to the given offense. No more, no less. Now, this doesn't mean if you steal $100 from me that you simply have to give $100 back, and then it's even Stephen. And we can call that an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It's not really how it works. Not only do you need to give me back $100, but you need to compensate me for the injury or any sort of issues that arose from you taking my $100. Uh, in the Mosaic Law, if you stole something from me, not only do you need to pay it back, but you must pay back 20% of what you took. This covers any inconvenience that your offense caused me. This is how godly men understand justice. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. However, a couple weeks ago, we went over the warrior poet Lamech, uh, Lamech the Canaanite, or Canaanite. In Genesis 4, Lamech invented polygamy, even though from the beginning it was not so. And then we read how this man boasted to his wives how he had murdered a young boy for a minor offense. We know this is a poem because of the Hebrew parallelism in verse 23 of chapter 4 and verse 24. We'll read in a second, but we do know this is actually a young boy. It's not a young man like Tate or someone. It's actually a young boy. And the word wounding is not a deadly wound, it's a minor wound, something like a bruise or something similar to that. Genesis 4, 23-24, Lamech's poem reads, And Lamech said unto his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, ye wives of Lamech, hearken unto my speech. For I have slain a man to my wounding, and a young man to my hurt. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech, seventy and sevenfold. As I said about two weeks ago, this is how wicked people think about justice. If you bring any offense against me or anyone I care about, regardless of how minor, I will take vengeance into my own hands and I will repay you with the full force of my own wrath. 
which is typically 77-fold of what you should be giving them. Another point we talked about is how we often think of ourselves that we're not like Lemek. We're better than that. We don't take vengeance into our hands. We don't you know, cause offense to someone just because of a minor injury to us. But as I pointed out, we kill babies thousands of times every year simply because of the inconvenience they'll cause us. Many people say having a baby will prevent me from going to college. It will prevent me from my Hollywood acting career. It would, stress, it would put stress on my finances, so kill it. But does the Bible say killing a child is okay? Look again at Exodus 21, uh, verse 22. If a man strive and hurt a woman with child, so that her fruit depart from her, and yet no mischief follow, he shall be surely punished, according as the woman's husband will lay upon him. And he shall pay as the judges determine. And if any mischief follow, if any injury follow, then thou shalt give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, Hand for hand, foot for foot, burning for burning, wound for wound, and stripe for stripe. Do you think God's trying to stress something here? <laughs> seems to me he's... An eye for an eye would have surmised, but he seems to be stressing this point. God requires payment for the injury of the child, even while it was in the womb. Why? Because God has a special affection and care for the helpless. He has a special affection for those who are highly dependent on those who they are entrusted to. And what is more helpless and entrusted to people of of higher authority than a baby? We can see God's love and care for the unborn all throughout the scriptures. And the fact that he has already known them personally, even while they were in the womb. Jeremiah 1.5, a popular verse. Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet to the nations. Now, obviously, the part about being a prophet to the nations doesn't apply to us. But the point is, and what I think does apply to us, is the fact God knows the unborn child. He knows them by name. Psalm 22, 9 says, But thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breast. I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. Isaiah 49.1 says, Listen, O isles, unto me, and hearken, ye people, from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb. From the bowels of my mother hath he made mention of my name. Psalm 51.5 reads, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin my mother didn't conceive me. Now the reason why I bring that one up, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin my mother did bear me, he's talking about the fact that he had a sin nature from the womb. How do you have a sin nature if you're not a human being? The fact that the unborn still has that sin nature, even if they can't fully exercise it yet, points to the fact they have humanity. Galatians 1, verse 15, Paul talks about his being ordained of God from the womb. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. And then he goes on talking about how he went and studied the word. But he says, God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace. God's grace is appointed to his people even while they are in the womb. It's not an action that they choose. It's not something that they spur up in God. Even while they are helpless in the womb, doing neither good or evil, God's grace is upon his own people. 
We can also see that there is indeed a spirit in the preborn. We saw it somewhat with the fact David says uh, he was conceived in iniquity. But in Luke chapter 1, verse 41, we t- it's talking about John the Baptist. I'm sure we've all heard this story. It's a bit odd at first. Verse 41. And it came to pass that when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, the babe leaped, John the Baptist, the babe leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost. The womb was filled with the Holy Ghost, and John the Baptist leaped. He was joyous to hear of Jesus. Now, obviously, this was a supernatural experience. I don't think most uh, preborns can understand language. <laughs> but it does point to the fact that God can regenerate that sinful nature even in the womb if he chooses to. Psalm 127, 3 through 5. And I realize these are a lot of verses, but it's just hammering down what the Bible teaches on this subject. Children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their opponents in the court. This is quite opposite of our nation and our culture's way of thinking about children. We think about them as a drag, as a financial burden. It's just nothing about making jokes of how awful they are. (laughs) I'm sure none of you do that. But God tells us we need to orient our thinking in viewing children as a blessing. It doesn't matter if they put financial pressure on you. Psalm 139. This is another popular verse. Uh, Verses 12 through 17. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee. For thou hast possessed my reins. Thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and in in that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret, and curiously wrought in the lower parts of the earth. Thine eyes did my substance yet bring unperfect. Thine eyes did see my substance yet being unperfect, and in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fin- fashioned when as yet there was none of them. How precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God! How great is the sum of them. He's talking about the darkness of the womb and the mysteriousness of how a child is formed, especially back then. They had no real idea of what was going on. And yet God saw it all. He was the one knitting that child together. Just one more. Isaiah forty-nine fifteen. Can a mother forget her baby as her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born though she may forget i will not forget you now it may be sound like a rhetorical question can a mother forget her own child you might want to say no but the answer is yes there are awful mothers and wicked mothers who do forget their own child they'll kill them they'll treat them poorly but god says i will not forget you and it kind of reminds me of <laughs> This may seem odd at first. Women who have an abortion are kind of like an ostrich. What I mean by that, in the book of Job, it talks about how God is talking about how he gives wisdom and withholds wisdom from different creatures. Some creatures have more wisdom, that is, they have more knowledge and display more reasoning, but not the ostrich. God talks about how the ostrich tramples her young and kills her young because God has withheld, withhold an understanding from her of what she's doing.
God's love, God loves the unborn because God loves, because God's love and mercy is displayed when he cares for the helpless and becomes a father to the fatherless. And our magistrates and our judges need to be called to repent for their wickedness perpetrated on helpless babes. Because God ordained government to be a terror to evildoers and to give justice to the weak. Isaiah 10 says, Woe unto them that decree unrighteous decrees and that right grievousness which they have prescribed. To turn aside the needy from judgment and to take away the right from the poor of my people, the widows may be, that widows may be their prey and that they may rob the fatherless. Psalm 82 in the God's the council of the gods here is really just judges. It's the judges of Israel. Psalm 82. God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among, among the gods. How long will ye judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked, Selah? Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Rid them out of the hand of the wicked. They know not, neither will they understand. They walk in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. I have said, ye are gods, all of you are children of the Most High, but ye shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, that thou, for thou shalt inherit all nations. Our Congress and our judges need to be called to forsake the vile abominations that they propagate. Joe Biden and Pelosi, AOC, Bernie Sanders, Gavin Newsom, and all our philosopher kings in the Supreme Court. They need to be rebuked for having the audacity to legalize filicide, that is, the killing of a child by their own parents. There is going to come a day when all these magistrates enter the courts of heaven, and as they walk past the cherubim with burning swords in their hands, and their eyes are blinded by the bright flames of the seraphim, and their ears are pierced with all the angels singing unrelenting praise to the Almighty, they will stand before the glorious throne of Jesus Christ, and they will melt like wax before a fire. Proverbs says, God despises evil and those who kill the innocent. Proverbs 6. These six things does the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked imaginations. Feet that, feet that be swift in ruining to, running to mischief a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among brethren. You know, I started thinking more about that. All the things that the Lord hates are everything that the wicked rulers love. Every wicked ruler loves these things. Tyrants love evil because they are evil. And when we look at tyrants like Xi Jinping of China and Kim Jong-un of North Korea, we see they hate children. They want to try and control the population and suppress its growth. And they usually do that by forced abortions and essentially sterilizing the people. So I came up with a sort of antonym proverb to that one. Six things does the tyrant hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. A mother who rears many children with wisdom and having herself a husband strong and all true. A people well armed and having no need of benefactors. Heralds of truth without compromise and having conduct that adorns their doctrine. A God that fears, that is feared more than him. All these things does the tyrant hate. 
as Matt was talking about this morning, how their CEOs and lots of influential people, they get their jobs and careers ruined just for supporting the idea that we shouldn't kill babies in the womb. And it's unbelievable, and it really shows how far we've fallen in our culture. They do this because wicked people hate what God loves, and they love what God hates. They can't stand being confronted with truth, and so they try and suppress it or else ban it. So the Bible makes it very clear that God loves the unborn. He has a special care for them. Now next, I want to talk about the scientific arguments, and it really shouldn't take all that long. (laughs) Biology is pretty clear about this. It isn't hard to prove that biology confirms what the Bible says, that the unborn person is a living human being. People say that the unborn isn't a person, but this is biologically false. At the moment of fertilization, all that a person is and ever will be is completely contained within that zygote. That is the first single cell. The zygote is alive because dead things can't grow. It's a pretty basic biological fact. It is unique because there is nothing alive that has its own DNA code. Its DNA code is completely unique, completely separate from any other being, including its mother. Also, it is not the mother's body, because if the zygote were not in the womb, the mother's body would actually attack and kill it because it would not recognize it as its own. It would see the zygote as a foreign invader. Inside the womb, it's protected, though. Some admit it is biologically alive, but it isn't human. Okay, so what is it? (laughs) Is it a bacteria? An amoeba? A virus? No, it's not any of those things. It's an organism. What kind of organism? Is it a fish? A chicken? Maybe it's a potato. (laughs) It's a human. It's a human organism. So biology shows us that Everything a human is or can be is wrapped up in that one single cell. It is a unique, living human being. Just because it isn't exercising its self-awareness yet doesn't mean it's not a human. Uh, There is a debate by Ben Shapiro, and he was talking about pro-life arguments, and a man was objecting, saying, well, it doesn't have self-awareness, so it's not a human. And so Ben Shapiro said, okay, let's say there's a man and he goes into a coma and he has no self-awareness for a long time. And the man said, well, how long is he in the coma? And Ben Shapiro said, well, I don't know, about nine months. (laughs) And when he wakes up, he will have no memory of who he was or where he came from or what his name is. He, He was clean slate. While he is in that coma and you know He's not exercising self-awareness, and when he wakes up, he will have no recollection of who he is. Is he a human while he's in the coma? Yes, just because he isn't exercising his self-awareness at that moment doesn't mean he's stopped being a human. The capacity for self-awareness is in the zygote. Just because it's not exercising it yet doesn't mean it can't do it. So it's a pretty short argument, scientifically speaking. There's no real objection No valid objection. So let's move on to the philosophical questions, more the ethical questions. When, if ever, is it okay to kill an unborn human? Some say, well, if the newborn is unexpected. It's not a good argument. (laughs) 
can I kill other children who are unexpected? I was unexpected. <laughs> the point is, if it's a human from the beginning, then it must be just as much as human inside the womb as outside the womb. And if you don't believe that, what if you had... What we can do today with modern technology, we can take children out of the womb, perform surgery on them, and then put them back inside the womb. So is it not a human while inside the womb, goes to being human outside the womb, then goes back to not being human inside the womb, only to be human again when it comes back out? It's a wholly arbitrary perspective. So we know the human is, it is a human in the womb. When is it okay to kill a human? When they're unexpected? No. Because then we would have to say that we can kill other humans when they're unexpected. What, about, what if it's an inconvenience? Again, same argument. If it's a human being, when is it okay to kill an innocent human being? What if they're inconveniencing you? Can I kill you because you're an inconvenience to me? What if they're going to be born into poverty? It's going to have a poor life and a miserable life. Okay, so when I see a homeless child on the street, I can kill them, right? Put them out of their misery, because that's the argument that's being made. If it's an innocent human being in the womb, then it's wrong to kill the innocent human being. You would have to apply the same situation to the child outside the womb as you do inside the womb. What if the child is ill? What if it has some sort of genetic deformity? And quite frankly, this is kind of a disgusting argument. If we had more kids with Down syndrome and autism in this world, I think the world would be a kinder and more gentle place. You would have a means, you would have a child that needs your care and protection, and that kind of care for a helpless person is the kind of care that God shows to us as sinners. That kind of love reflects the love of God. And so it's not, it's, again, you can still apply the same argument. If I see a person with autism, can I kill them? No. <laughs> it's a human being. What about rape or incest? Can I kill, well, can I kill other people who are the result of rape? And this is more of a touchy one because many people, they know how horrible that is. And that is a very um, horrific event. But people who say this really are missing the point of the argument. We are talking about the ontology of the unborn child. And ontology, what that means is it's the study of being. What is it? When we talk about the ontology of an unborn child, we're, we're asking, what is it? Is it an innocent human being? Yes. Every indication points it is an innocent human being. And while that sort of circumstance may be horrific, and we should have compassion on women, and sometimes men, who go through that, we can't just say we can kill people just because of the mode of their conception, just because of the context of their conception. Uh, there are other sinful acts that lead to pregnancy. What if someone is conceived out of wedlock? Can you kill them? That's also a sin. It's a horrific thing in, in the eyes of God. But just because of the mode of their conception or the context of their conception does not give you a right to kill them. Again, I know that's one, a bit of a harder one for some people to understand, but that is the logical conclusion, both from the Bible and just philosophically speaking. What about the mother's health? What if the mother's life is in jeopardy for the continued pregnancy? First of all, in the event that a mother's life is at risk for the pregnancy is an extremely, extremely rare thing. 
It barely ever happens. But what happens when it do- what about when it does happen? I used to say that that would be the exception, because in that case you're not trying to you're not seeking out the death of the child. You're trying to do your best to save the mother's life. And I don't think that's a terrible argument, but I think I've changed that position. I cannot think of any circumstance where you cannot simply deliver the baby. And if the child dies of natural causes afterwards, then it dies of natural causes. So if the mother's life is at risk for the continued pregnancy, what the doctor should do is allow the child to grow in the womb as much as reasonably and safely as possible without killing the mother, remove the child from the womb, and give it all the aid you can. Try and save that child and keep it from dying. And in the end, if it does die, it didn't die by your hands. It died of natural causes. Again, if you disagree and take the former position, I'm not going to have too much to quarrel with you about. So some final thoughts. We've seen that God declares the unborn a person, and if it is killed or injured, the law of retaliation applies. The preborn child deserves justice. Biology confirms the humanity of the child in the womb, and our knowledge of biology should really scare us. This generation, more than any other, has more knowledge of the unborn and what goes inside the darkness of the womb more than us, more than any other people that came before us. We, know, we now have uh, sonograms that showing the movement of the child in the womb. Uh, we have fetal models from every stage of development. We have a fairly good understanding of all the chemicals and all the chemical reactions going on that form the child. And all that knowledge makes us far more responsible for our actions. We know exactly what we're killing in the womb, and there's no excuse for it. All this knowledge that God has provided to us has only made us more accountable. Philosophically, we are at odds with a satanic, Canaanite-minded worldview. From their evolutionary perspective, generally almost always an evolutionary perspective, all life is purposeless and materialistic. Nothing but matter and energy. Which means all chemical beings are equal, equally worthless. Why, <laughs> why should the biochemical creature in the womb have more importance than me. I have more power and after all survival of the fittest. That's not you're not gonna hear people say that <laughs> because they know it sounds bad. But that is the, basically what the worldview that is driving them implies. That is the logical conclusion. And that is a very dangerous path to follow logically. It is a very, very dangerous ideology. There's a reason why the 20th century was the bloodiest century of any other. Many tyrants rose up, all of whom had evolutionary worldviews, like Hitler and Stalin and Mao, and also Kim Jong-il. And it was the implications of their worldview that made them reason that what they're doing was a good thing. They were the heroes. They were doing something better for us. They were driving humanity forward. And that is because of their worldview. That was the logical implication of what they were doing. But the ethics of abortion simply do not hold. Either you must abandon abortion as a moral good or concede that killing children outside the womb is no different than killing children inside the womb. 
another question that comes up is where do dead infants go? What happens when a baby dies and it had no chance of responding to the gospel at all? Uh, didn't really ha- even have a chance to exercise conscience, uh, a conscience of morality. I think there's some implication we can get from scripture of what happens to babies who die. In 2 Samuel, uh, David's child was being taken away from him from God. God was essentially putting the child to death as an act of judgment for his adultery with Bathsheba and as, also as a judgment for murdering Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. David mourns for the child while the child is alive and clearly dying. But when the child finally dies, David stops mourning, and this confuses his servants because they naturally expected that this would cause more sorrow for David, David that the child actually dies would cause David to grieve more. But he doesn't. In Second Samuel chapter 12, verse 21, Then said his servants unto him, What thing is this that thou hast done? Thou didst fast and weep for the child while it was alive. But when the child was dead, thou didst rise and eat bread. And he said, While the child was yet alive, I fasted and I wept. For I said, Who can tell whether God will be gracious to me, that the child may live? But now he is dead. Wherefore should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. The implication is that the child will not come back to earth, but David will go to meet him again when David dies. And the inference is that the child was taken to heaven by God's grace. So some concluding thoughts. We've demonstrated that the claim that the unborn is not a real human being with inherent dignity, and therefore we can kill it, is scientifically false, philosophically moronic, and theologically abominable. So pick your poison. Whichever school of knowledge you want to have this argument in, you're going to lose. Abortion is murder. It is filicide. It is the killing of a child by their own parents. But I don't want to leave today without also reminding everyone, either people here or people listening online, that there is forgiveness for abortion found in the gospel of Christ. In the beginning, God created the world perfect and had perfect fellowship with mankind. When Adam and Eve sinned, they plunged the world under the dominion of sin and death and enslaved the human nature. But when this happened, God gave Eve a promise. Genesis 3.15, God said to Eve, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, speaking to Satan, excuse me, (laughs) speaking to Satan about Eve, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. God promised that he was not going to destroy Adam and Eve. He was not going to send all humanity straight to hell for sinning against him. He was going to allow humanity to continue to live and continue to fill the earth. And he promised he would bring about a seed, a child, from Eve. And this seed would crush the head of the, of the serpent that had deceived them. And the book of Genesis really is a book all about God's election and appointing people through whom he would bring about this seed. God elected to save Adam and Eve. He elected Seth and his line down to Noah, and from Noah to Shem, and from Shem to Abraham. To Abraham, God promised that this seed would not only be a blessing to his house and his family, but would be a blessing to all nations. 
The Old Testament then continues the history of God bringing about this promised child from Abraham down to David, or from Abraham to Isaac, from Isaac to Jacob, from Jacob to Judah, and from Judah to David, and finally from David to Jesus Christ, the anointed one, the promised seed that God vowed to bring. Jesus, unlike Adam, kept the whole law. And he kept it perfect, not only one law, but he kept the entirety of the Mosaic law, not only in paradise, but he kept it while he pitched his tent among us in a sin-cursed world. He obeyed everything perfectly, without failure and without transgression. Yet he still chose to take the curse of the law. The law says that cursed is every man that hangeth on a tree. And the reason why it says that is the people who hang on the tree are criminals. They're hung, they're crucified. People on a tree are criminals. So that's the curse of the law, and yet Jesus hung on the tree without sin. Galatians 3 says, in verse 6, Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith are are blessed with faithful Abraham. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things written in the written in the book of the law to do them. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident, for the just shall live by faith. And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. That the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that he might receive the promise of the the promise of the spirit through faith Christ bore the curse on behalf of us to save us and free us from sin and that's not a hypothetical freedom that's not a hypothetical salvation that is a real salvation with real freedom God will no longer remember those sins even of abortion he will no longer call them to mind he will not hold the grudge against you all that anger all that wrath has been poured out on Christ Paul says in 1 Corinthians, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetousness, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus, and by the Spirit of our God. There is no sinner beyond saving, even those who kill their own children. If anyone has had an abortion, and yes, it is a wicked thing, it is the killing of a child. But God's grace is far greater. To say Christ cannot forgive abortion is to say that Christ's blood is not valuable enough, valuable enough to cover my sin. Or to say that God won't let me live it down is to accuse Christ of not being forgiving enough. So let's all remember John 8, 36. If the Son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word tonight, and thank you for giving us clarity about what the unborn child is, 
It is a precious thing to you. It is something you care about. In, in the caring of the helpless, we reflect your love to us, how you loved us when we were helpless and when we can offer nothing to you. Father, I pray you help us meditate on your word and continually remind us of your gospel throughout the week. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roner Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.